Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Go to Isaiah chapter 6, if you will, the book of Isaiah and chapter 6. I think this will be a familiar passage to many of us tonight, but I uh, want to look at kind of an underlying meaning here in Isaiah chapter 6 that I believe can be a great encouragement to us as believers in 2022. And it is 2022. I was, uh, I was uh, in a church recently and a young man stood up to give a testimony and he said, you know, it's 2022. And he said, we don't need another 2020." <laughs> We've already had a 2020. We don't need a 2022, like 2.0, you know, so uh, appreciated uh, that correction tonight. We want to make sure that we're living in the right year. Uh, that was not a year we want to repeat for sure. Isaiah chapter 6, look at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Hereby send me. There will be seasons in your life where you'll wonder, where's God? It'll seem like God is absent. It'll seem like God has vacated his throne. You'll pray, but it seems like God isn't listening. You'll, you'll ask God for his help, but it seems like God is distant from your life. There are seasons, maybe you're in one right now, where you feel like God is, is absent. He just doesn't seem as close. He doesn't seem as present and per, as perhaps he was in days gone by. There are seasons when it seems like we'll wonder, where is God? When I was a freshman in college, I had met a young lady and we became friends and and uh, we weren't really serious uh, at that point, but uh, we became good friends and, and uh, began to, you know, get to know each other. And by the time we got to my junior year, I suppose people would have said we were pretty serious. Hadn't talked about getting married or anything like that. She was a year and a half ahead of me in school and was about to graduate. And uh, I still had a, a semester and, and a full year left, three more semesters, year and a half left. She was finishing, going off to teach in a, in a Christian school in Indiana, and I still had this, this year and a half of, of, of classes, and, and uh, she was going to be a teacher, and God was calling me to be an evangelist, and it just seemed like we were kind of headed different directions. 
We had talked about this. Is this really God's will for us to, to uh, continue our relationship? As, and, 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 and finally, one day, after lunch, we were talking, and we decided that it would be best for us to end our relationship. Uh, she was going to be leaving and going off to teach, and I still had all this school and headed toward preaching. And, and so we, we decided that we would end our, our friendship, our relationship. Well, I went to an afternoon class. I had a, an upper-level speech class, and I knew everybody in the class. We always had a good time in that class. We had taken a lot of courses together, and it was always a fun class. But that day, I chose a seat over by the window away from everybody else because I couldn't stop crying. Now, I'm not a crier, but that day, I couldn't stop crying. All of a sudden, there was this hole in my life. There was this empty place. And I remember sitting there trying to get a hold of my emotions. And I remember the thought coming to me, God, where are you? It was 1976. I was scheduled to preach three weeks of revival here in the state of California in the city of Los Angeles. I'd never been to California before and certainly had never been to Los Angeles. I lived in the Midwest. I got in my car. I had a Volkswagen Beetle. And uh, I got on the, on the road. There were no interstate highways in those days, two-lane highways, 55 miles an hour, had no air conditioning in my car. And I began, as I started that trek across the U.S., I thought, they lied to me in geography class. I don't think there is a Pacific Ocean. I don't think there is a place called California. It just seemed like I was never going to get there. Finally, I arrived here in Los Angeles, and I began to look for a church in the city of La Puente. Now, we didn't have GPS in those days. We had what they called maps. Now, for you young people, that's a sheet of paper with some lines on it that represent roads, okay? And I'm trying to follow this crazy thing and find this church in La Puente, California. And I made my way in. I'd been driving for like three days and finally arrived at this church. And I was just glad to be there. It was a Saturday morning about 10 o'clock. And I was finally here and ready to go to work in this revival meeting. And I, I, I got out of the car in that parking lot. And there was a man working on some flower beds, kind of sprucing up the, the outside a little bit. And I walked over to him, introduced myself. And he introduced himself as the pastor. And after we introduced the, uh, ourselves, he said, what can I do for you? I said, well, I'm here to hold a revival. He said, I don't know anything about that. I said, oh, well, nice to meet you. <laughs> I got back in my car and I thought, what am I going to do? I mean, my next meeting wasn't going to start until another week. Uh, you know, it was going to be six days before I was supposed to be at the next church. And, and, and there had been some mix-up, some schedule mix-up. And I, I thought, Lord, what am I going to do? I, I started driving down that street that the church was on. And, and uh, I probably drove eight or ten blocks. It seemed like a little bit longer, but kind of thinking and looking and praying. And, and uh, I finally found this, this hotel. Actually, there were two of them side by side. I affectionately called them the bag hotel and and uh, I, I, I stopped at one and I went into the front uh, office there and there was a lady at the desk I said uh, I think I need to see the manager she called for help and this this fella came out he said what can I do for you I said well I I'm I'm here in your city for the next six days and I, I, I need a place to stay 
He said, no problem. I said, well, there, there is a little problem. I only had $36 in my pocket. Now, I didn't have a credit card. Nobody had a credit card back in those days. I didn't have a credit card. I didn't have a phone. I, di I didn't have anything. I had $36 in cash. And I said, sir, all I've got is $36. He kind of thought for a minute, looked at me, and he, he reached under the counter and he pulled out a ring of keys. He said, follow me. We went out a back door into this kind of courtyard area. It really didn't look like a courtyard, but it was in between some buildings and there were some old dressers and some old beds uh, kind of stacked up, kind of a junky area. We made our way through there. He took one of those keys and opened an iron door and pushed it back and we walked into a small little room, had a tile floor. It had a, a, an iron military cot with a mattress on it. There was, a, there, was a, there was a commode, there was a sink, there was a shower, and there was a metal folding chair. He said, it's all yours, six bucks a night. I gave him my $36, and he shut the door. Now, I remember when he shut the door, I, I noticed something out of my left peripheral, and I, I looked up, and above the door, there was a little shelf, and on that shelf was a small black and white television set. And I thought to myself, well, at least I have a TV. You know, and before I even unpacked anything, I walked over there and I, I clicked that TV on. And when it came on, it was showing snow. White lines going across a black screen. And I thought, well, I don't want to see any snow. I, I left snow. I'm in California. I don't want to see snow. So I changed the channel to the next one. It was showing the same program. I went all the way around that dial and every channel was just static. I remember sitting on that bed, and I thought, Lord, where are you? It was about 1983. I was married now, had two children, and we were traveling in a, in a trailer, pulling a trailer across the country, doing revival meetings. And we were in Chicago, West Chicago, in a town called Warrenville, Illinois. The pastor, there was a church planter, and, and uh, we had been with him before in another city. He would usually go for two or three years, plant a church, and, and get it up and going, call a pastor, and then he'd move on to another town. And we had been with him before. He was a very gracious man, a wonderful family, had seven children, and, and we had gotten to know them over the years. And here they were now in Warrenville, and we pulled in and parked our trailer there in front of their house. They had a big three-story house, and, and we pulled in on a Saturday night, and, and and, uh, and uh, got reacquainted, they were meeting in an elementary school for this church plant. And, and that week, if it could go wrong, it went wrong. I mean, it was just Murphy's Law. I mean, everything just turned out to be a catastrophe. Every night, the janitor would not show up. We had to break in the building just to have the service. It was, it was like that all week long, just things one after another, just trials and setbacks. And this church was just not going well. Well, finally, about Wednesday, I, I said to my wife, I said, you know, the pastor here is really discouraged. And you can see it in his wife. You can see it in his kids. They're just really frustrated here. This isn't going well. And the meetings were very poorly attended. We were having a hard time getting visitors to come. And I said, you know, uh, to my wife, I said, I, I don't know what the love offering will be at the end of the week. It probably won't be much, but I, I just kind of feel like maybe we should give it to the pastor. Whatever it is, we should just sign the check over to the pastor to, to encourage his family. I think he needs it worse than we do. 
Well, she said, you know, I've been thinking the same thing. I said, well, let's pray about it. You know, let's think about it a little bit. And so we prayed the next couple of days and Friday we decided that's what we would do. Well, Friday night came and the service was similarly not very good and we went back to the house and he invited us to come in for some fellowship and we sat there and played some games with the kids and ate some popcorn and finally he reached in his pocket and he pulled out an envelope and he said, Brother Getch, here's your love offering. We wish it could be more, but we did our best. And, and he said, I, I, I just pray it'll be sufficient. And I, for the first time in my life, before or since, I opened it up in the presence of the pastor and I pulled out that check. And I was ready to turn it over, to sign it over to him. But I noticed the amount. It was for $250. Now in 1983, $250 was a lot of money. And that was a large love offering for a week of meetings. And I was, I was startled. I thought, what, where did they get that kind of money? But I already decided, I turned it over, I signed the back, and I gave it to the pastor. I said, Pastor, God wants us to give this to your family. Well, he protested. No, no, no. I said, no, you're taking it. I put it in his pocket. And uh, he started crying. His wife started crying. The kids all started crying. And I got out of there. I mean, there's no sense <laughs> hanging around, that kind of stuff, you know. And when you obey the Lord like that, you feel really good about it. I mean, we went to bed that night, slept like a rock, got up the next morning, hooked up our, our trailer. We were pulling a 16,000-pound trailer across the country, got it all hooked up. I had gas on board, and we were headed for St. James, Minnesota. And we pulled out of Chicago, up through Wisconsin. We got to La Crosse, Wisconsin, and both of my gas tanks were on empty. I still had over 100 miles to go. And I looked at that and I said, Lord, I need gas. And the Lord said, well, get some. I said, well, that's easy for you to say, but I don't have any money. I gave all my money to the pastor in Chicago. I didn't have a credit card, didn't have a debit card, didn't have, I had nothing. I said, Lord, I, I don't have any money. He said, get gas. I said, well, Lord, yeah, you can get gas, but you have to pay for it. I don't have anything to pay for it with. He said, get gas. Well, I had heard preachers tell stories about pulling into a gas station by faith and filling up their tank, and then somebody else paid for it. Well, I didn't have that kind of faith. I was, I was operating on a cash basis, right? And so I said, Lord, I can't do that. He said, get gas. And he reminded me in the trailer, we had bought the kids a little yellow bucket that they could play in the dirt or the sand with, you know, and it had broken almost immediately. The handle came off of it. But the kids liked the color of that bucket, and they talked us into keeping it, and, and they would always get our pennies. If we had any pennies in our pocket, they would grab them, and they would throw it in that bucket. And we weren't saving it for anything, but that bucket was about three-quarters full of pennies. And God said, use that. Well, I pulled into a gas station in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and bought 40 gallons of gas with pennies. I'll never forget the attendant of the station counting them two by two on the glass counter and the seven people behind me <laughs> angrily waiting to pay for their gas. But God miraculously got us to St. James. We got there, we got set up, little clapboard white building on the edge of town right next to the field grounds and the Manor Baptist Church, about 30 people in the church, all of them older than 65. And the pastor was working 50 hours a week at a lumber yard trying to put food on the table. And here we were, but we were just glad to be there. 
Sunday morning, we went in and preached the Sunday school hour and the morning service. And afterwards, nobody said anything about lunch. So we just kind of went back out to the trailer and we had a few canned goods. We put those together and had some lunch thinking, well, they'll, they'll feed us tonight, you know. And in the evening, we went in for the evening service. And afterwards, the pastor said, well, I got to get up at four o'clock and go to work tomorrow. So I'll see you tomorrow night at seven. And we went to bed hungry. Well, the next morning I got up and I was going to wash down my trailer and my truck. It always got all that road grime on it, you know, from travel. And I was going to wash it all down. And I was out there behind my truck washing that trailer. And I was having a pity party. I said, now, Lord, I did exactly what you told me to do in Chicago. I know I did exactly what you wanted me to do. And you miraculously got us here. But now what? I mean, I can fast. I don't have to eat this week. I, I, that's fine. But I have a wife and two kids in there. And if I don't take care of them, the Bible says I've denied the faith. I'm worse than an infidel. God, where are you? There's going to be times where you'll wonder, where's God? And I think Isaiah is there. The king has just died. The nation is without leadership. Here's the prophet of God. His nation is vulnerable, perhaps to an attack by the enemy. And he's wondering, Lord, what, what's the plan? What's going on here? What, what are we going to do? And I believe in these verses, though there is a primary interpretation of these verses and application, I believe underneath the surface, Isaiah reveals to us three locations where we can always find God. First of all, God is always in the holy place. Did you notice as Isaiah gets this vision of heaven, he sees the throne of God, and around the throne are these angelic beings called seraphims, and they each have six wings. The Bible says with, with twain they covered their face, with twain they covered their feet, and with twain they did fly. And one of them cries out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When God seems missing in your life, we need to get back to the holy place. He's always in the holy place. You see, holy is a word that describes everything about God. God's a loving God, but his love is a holy love. God's a God of wrath, but his, God, his wrath is a holy wrath. God is a God of justice. God is a long-suffering God. God is a forgiving God. But holy is that, is that characterizing word of all of his attributes. He is a holy God. In Exodus 15 and verse 11, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness? The psalmist said we're to worship in, uh, the in his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. In Revelation 15 and verse 4, John says, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. Now, let's remind ourselves tonight that holy and unholy cannot coexist. So when we get away from God 
And we begin to drift from God, as the songwriter said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. When we start drifting toward the world, God's going to seem distant. And when God seems absent, we've got to get back to that holy place in our life. If we want God's presence, if we want his power, if we want his provision, if we want his protection, we've got to stay in the holy place. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and they were a church that struggled with holiness. They were in a culture that was very wicked, and these Corinthians, they they had gotten saved out of a very wicked lifestyle, many of them, as we see in 1 Corinthians 6. Such were some of you, but you're washed, you're justified, you're sanctified by the Lord Jesus. And Paul said in chapter 7, having therefore these promises, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the sight of the Lord. Perfecting holiness. How hard do we work at perfecting holiness? Someone who plays the piano has to practice. They don't just walk up here and start playing. They have to perfect those skills, don't they? Someone who plays basketball for the Lakers, they don't just walk on the court, put a uniform on, say, okay, I'm I'm ready to play. No, they have to practice. They have to perfect those skills, right? How hard do we work at perfecting holiness? Paul said, follow peace and holiness without which no man can see the Lord. See, when holiness departs from our life, when we get involved in the things of this world, all of a sudden God's going to seem distant. God's going to seem absent. He hasn't moved, but we have. And so when God seems vacant in our life, we've got to come back to the holy place. But notice secondly, God's always in the humble place. In in, in verse 5, Isaiah gets a glimpse of God's holiness, and what's his response? Woe is me, for I'm undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The humble place. One of my fast-becoming favorite verses in the Bible, and I have many, but in Isaiah 66 and verse 2, the Bible says, to this man will I look. Now, I don't know about you, but I need God to look my way. I need God's favor. I need God's blessing. I can't be the Christian I'm supposed to be without him. For without him, I can do nothing. I, I can't be the preacher I'm supposed to be, or the husband I'm supposed to be, or the, or the dad I'm supposed to be, or the granddad I'm supposed to be. I, I can't be the staff member I'm supposed to be. I can't do anything without him. So I need God to look my way. And he says, to this man will I look, even to him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit, and that trembleth at my word. Does that describe us? Are we in the humble place tonight? God doesn't hang around his abominations. These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, and the one that heads the list is a proud look. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination unto the Lord. I love Psalm 138, verse 6. It says, though the Lord be high, well, I guess he's about as high as you go, right? He's the creator of the universe. You can't get higher than God. 
So it says, though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth afar off. If I asked you, who do you respect? Well, it would depend upon the context of our conversation, right? If I asked Brother Kim, who do you respect in the area of piano? Brother Kim's a beautiful pianist. If I said, Brother Kim, who do you respect uh, that's a piano player? I would guess that he would say somebody that's better than he is, right? You respect people that are more skilled or more trained or more experienced. You look up to them, right? If you're a basketball player and you're, you're 10 years old, well, who do you respect? Well, you, you would look up to a high school player, or a high school player would look up to a college player, or a college player would look up to a professional player. We're always looking up. If you were talking about a business model, you would say, well, I respect this company because they've done things really well, and they've become very successful, and their employees are happy, and that's what I'm trying to do with my business. You're always looking up. Well, who does God respect? He's at the top. And the Bible says he has respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth afar off. I've had the privilege of traveling this world for 47 and a half years. And, and when you do that, you get into all these churches and even in foreign countries and here in America, and you meet a lot of people. And I've met some great Christians over the years. And I, I've met a lot of pastors and missionaries and other evangelists that I believe are great Christians. But I'll tell you, there's some great Christians in the pew in our churches too. There's some wonderful, godly people. But one of the things I've discovered, that if you're looking for a common denominator in all those people that I would consider to be great Christians, that common thread is humility. They're humble. Why? Because God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And when God seems absent in our life, we must go back to the humble place. When I was a small boy, preachers would talk about an evangelist named Paul Levine. I'd hear the name, but I, I'd never heard him preach. He never came to our church to preach, but our pastor, others would talk about evangelist Paul Levine. Paul Levine was saved at the age of four in Waterloo, Iowa. He was called to preach at the age of four. Don't ever underestimate what's going on in that children's class back there. God can do some amazing things in the life of a child. Paul Levine finished high school at the age of 15, and he began to travel as a full-time evangelist, never went to college. He just finished high school, went into evangelism, started preaching, couldn't drive a car, had to walk, hitchhike, take public transportation, but he went all over Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and began to preach. By the time he was 17, he had a full-time singer traveling with him named Bob Finley, and Bob Finley was completely blind. And Bob and Paul would play their mandolins, they would sing, and Paul would preach, and revivals were taking place all over the Midwest under their ministry. Paul Levine preached on the radio every day a program called Bible Echoes out of Waterloo, Iowa, and he preached the gospel for decades on the radio. 
He established a ministry called Bible Tracts Incorporated and printed millions of tracts in hundreds of languages, still in existence today. Paul Levine, I had heard all these stories, but I'd never met him. And I, I remember thinking to myself, someday, I hope I meet Paul Levine. Well, in 1981, I was holding a revival in Faith Baptist Church in Danville, Illinois. And one day, the secretary came running out to our trailer. She knocked on the door, and, and uh, she said, you have a phone call. You have a phone call. Well, again, we didn't have cell phones in those days. You had to go in the church and take the phone call. People knew where you were preaching. They'd call that church and ask for you. And so I ran in the office, and on the other end of that phone was a man named Bill Rice III. He introduced himself. I, I'd never met Bill Rice III. I had heard uh, his dad preach, Bill Rice Jr. I had heard his uncle preach, John R. Rice. I'd heard his other uncle preach, Joel B. Rice. I'd heard, I'd heard Pete Rice, his brother, preach. I knew about the Bill Rice Ranch in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I, I knew about that, that ministry, but I didn't, I'd never met Bill Rice III. He said, John, we've never met, but I've heard some things about your preaching, and I'd like to invite you to come to the Bill Rice Ranch and preach a youth week in the summer of 1983, two years away. He said, do you have your calendar handy? Man, I opened my calendar, began to look at the date he was asking for, but in my heart I was thinking, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. Not because of the opportunity to preach at the ranch. The Bill Rice Ranch started in 1953 Bill and Kathy Rice had a deaf daughter. Their oldest daughter was deaf. And they bought 1,500 acres outside of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where they established the Bill Rice Ranch, where deaf people could hear the gospel in sign language. Well, they would have weeks or retreats for these deaf people, but, of course, they had other weeks for hearing people. Weekend retreats, teen camps, things like that. And every teen week they ever had, first one was in 1953, every teen week from 1953 all the way up to the mid-1990s, Paul Levine was the main speaker. And as the weeks grew, they would add a second speaker to kind of supplement the preaching and, and, and take some of the load off Dr. Paul. And so Dr. Bill Rice was asking me to come and be that supplement preacher. I was going to get to meet Paul Levine. I was excited. We booked that meeting. Those years passed, and we got to the Bill Rice Ranch. And I remember the first night, I walked in a side door into the John R. Rice Auditorium. There were 1,400 teenagers seated in that auditorium, ready for the service. 1,400. But I wasn't watching them. I wasn't looking at them. I wondered, will I get to meet Dr. Paul tonight? He was preaching. I wasn't. And I, I thought, I'll get a seat. I, I hope I get to meet him tonight. Well, I'm walking in looking for a seat, and a man approached me. It was Dr. Bill. I had never met Bill Rice. But he put out his hand. He said, welcome to the ranch, Brother Gatch. We're glad you're here. And we exchanged a greeting. He said, uh, come up on the platform. I want you to meet Dr. Paul. Well, I looked up on the platform, and it was a long platform, very long, probably about twice as long as this platform, or wide, I should say. There was nothing on the platform except a piano, a pulpit, and there was one pew. There was a choir riser there, but there was one pew that went all the way across the, that platform. It's probably about 30 feet long. 
There were no people on the platform except for a man sitting on the end of that pew. It was Paul Levine. I'd seen pictures of him. I thought, that's him. And now Dr. Bill's inviting me to come up and meet him. Well, he's sitting there. He's got his Bible open. He's got a steno notebook hanging out. He's got his pen out, and he's writing notes. I'm thinking, he's writing his sermon. I don't think we want to disturb him right now. But I followed Dr. Bill up the steps, and we got up there, and, and Dr. Bill said, Dr. Paul, this is John Gash. Well, Dr. Paul, he closed his Bible, and he stood up, and he shook my hand with both hands, and he said, Brother Gadge, I am so excited to meet you. He said, I can't wait to hear you preach. And I thought, hear me preach? I'm here to hear you preach. He said, here, sit by me, sit by me. Oh, wow. I sat down on that pew next to him, and he opened that Bible and flipped that notebook out and started writing some more, and I'm, I'm kind of looking at it to see if I can read his sermon, but I couldn't read his handwriting. The service started. We had some music and so on, and the whole time, Dr. Paul's over there writing notes and thinking and praying, and I'm sitting next to him just having the time of my life. Well, it came time to introduce Dr. Paul, and so Dr. Bill got up and he said, all right, now, young people, tonight, in this first night, we get to hear Dr. Paul Levine. He said, Dr. Levine has been preaching here at the ranch since 1953, week after week of youth weeks, uh, dozens of times. He said, Dr. Paul, how many sermons have you preached here at the Bill Rice Ranch? Well, Dr. Paul wasn't even listening to the introduction. He still got his Bible open. He's still writing notes. But he heard his name and his head popped up and he said, uh, 1,112. And Dr. Bill said, think of that, young people. 1,112 times this man that we're going to hear tonight has preached from this pulpit to teenagers just like you. And he went on introducing them. And Dr. Paul, he punched me in the ribs. He said, I really don't know how many times I preach. <laughs> He said, all I know is I ran out of sermons a long time ago. <laughs> that was Dr. Paul. Humble. One, one week, years later, we were preaching together again there. and We were having a tough week. The teenagers were just hard. They, they weren't receptive. And it was Thursday night, and it was Dr. Paul's turn to preach. And he was burdened. You could, you could feel it. I'm sitting there next to me. He always wanted to, me to sit by him. And he was writing and praying all through the service. During the final special number, I kind of touched his knee a little bit. I, I leaned into him and I said, Dr. Paul, I'm praying for you. He leaned over and he said, thanks. Oh, thanks, Brother Ketch. He said, you know, people tell me to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. He said, I do but I don't trust the devil. And it was things like that that he said to me that began to shape and mold my life in ministry. Humility. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. Did you notice that? It's a do-it-yourself project. God can humble us. We've probably all been humbled a time or two by God but he's asking us to humble ourselves. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time. When God seems absent, we've got to get to the holy place. We've got to get to the humble place. And then finally, God's always in the harvest place. In verse 8, a verse we probably know, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? 
and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. God is always all about the harvest. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He's about the harvest. Jesus is born in the early part of the Gospels, and we marvel at that story in Matthew and at Luke, and during Christmas season we hear messages about his birth and the shepherds and the wise men and all those different things, and, and we rejoice in that. But then the Bible kind of skips forward to his, his ministry. And, and, and the Bible's kind of silent from the time he's about two to the time he's about 30, except for one time. Remember it? He was 12 years old. And his parents took him up to Jerusalem to a feast. And they traveled in a group. They traveled in a company of people, probably for friendship and fellowship or maybe for some accountability, maybe for safety. We don't know. But they traveled in this group. And they get up to Jerusalem and they celebrate the feast. And then they started for home. This group of people, they're traveling back to their, to their home. And they got about a day's journey. And they realized... We've lost God. <laughs> How do you lose God? And, and they can't find Jesus. He's a 12-year-old boy. And, and can you kind of imagine this conversation? Mary says, uh, Joseph, where's Jesus? Uh, I'm not sure, Mary. I, I thought he was with you. Well, no, no, Joseph, he's not with me. When we left Jerusalem, he was with you. Where is he? Well, I don't know, Mary. I thought he was with you. Well, when did you last see him, Joseph? Last time I saw him was when we were leaving. When we were leaving Jerusalem, that was 24 hours ago. And they panic and they run back to Jerusalem. You remember where they found him? In the temple. And he was answering the questions of the religious leaders. He was explaining to them the scriptures. And do you remember the conversation there? Mary said, Son, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Where hast thou been? Now, I'm sure there was a little more emotion of that. You know, like, Son, oh, oh, I'm so glad you're okay. Oh, son, where have you been? We've been looking everywhere for you. Are you okay? You know, and do you remember what he said to her? How is it that you sought me? Wist you not that I must be about my father's business? You should have known where to look. I'd be in the harvest. God's always in the harvest place. You know, when God seems absent, it might be a good practice to just grab some tracks and go somewhere and hand them out. When God seems vacant in your life, it might be a good idea maybe to call the church and say, hey, is there anybody in the hospital or anybody shut in that I might give a call to or I might go by and, and, and minister to a little bit? Friends, God will meet you there because he's always in the harvest place. Say not either yet four months and then cometh harvest. Lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. They're white already to harvest. He's always in the harvest place. By the way, that girl I broke up with that day, we've been married now 47 and a half years. <laughs> but we spent about a year apart because I wasn't ready for marriage. 
there was some purging that needed to take place in my life. I needed to get to the holy place before I was ready to enter into a sacred trust of marriage. And that week I spent in that hotel in La Puente, six days. That door never opened. I never went anywhere. I never ate a bite of food. Just me and God in the humble place. See, when I came out of college, I was ready to preach in the stadiums. Lord, bring them in, bring them in. I got three sermons, let me preach. You know, God said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We got to go to the humble place first. And I've been in thousands of revivals since that time, but I've never been in a more important revival than that week in that flea bag hotel where it was just God and me in the humble place. And that Monday morning in St. James, me out behind my trailer having a pity party, a car pulled into the parking lot. It was an old 1954 Ford, old antique car. The driver was a man they affectionately called Tiny. He weighed well over 400 pounds. He was not a member of Manor Baptist Church in St. James, but he had been in the service the night before. He and his wife and two little girls lived 40 miles away in a little town, and he had come to that revival that Sunday night for the express purpose of talking to my wife and I about what they should do. See, there was no church in their town. This was the closest church to where they lived. And, 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 and they'd been driving some to this church and looking for other churches, but there just weren't any. And he didn't know whether they should try to start a church or keep driving. It was hard on their little family to drive so far, 80 miles to church. And, and they asked Pastor if they could talk to us. And my wife and I sat on that front row and prayed with them and cried with them. I, I, I was young. I didn't know really what to tell him, but we tried. He pulls in the driveway. And he saw me behind the trailer and he rolled his window down and he said, Hey, Brother Gatch, do you need any food? Well, who just randomly pulls in a church parking lot and asks a question like that? <laughs> so I kind of dropped my tools. I walked over to the car and I said, What do you mean? He said, Do you need any food? I said, Well, sure. He said, Jump in the car, jump in the car. I got in that old car and we started driving that 40 miles to his house. After a few miles, I said, Tiny, what, what, what's this all about? He said, Brother Gedge, I work for the Jolly Green Giant. I'm looking at this guy over 400 pounds thinking, well, what do you do? Are you the mascot or what do you, you know, what, who, what do you do? I didn't know it at the time, but St. James is in a very fertile valley of Minnesota, and there are tens of thousands of acres of vegetable farms. And Del Monte, Jolly Green Giant, they have these huge processing plants, and this man was an executive of Jolly Green Giant. He said, Brother Gatch, I came out into my garage this morning to go to work, and he said, I have four freezers in my garage, and they're stacked full of food. We mispackage stuff, we mislabel it. I bring it home, throw it in those freezers. And he said, I looked at those freezers getting into my car and I, I thought, I wonder if that preacher needs any food. Well, I'm sitting there hearing this and I'm thinking, Lord, this is a blessing. This is good. But seriously, green beans? I mean, I'm hungry, but broccoli? 
I mean, can't you speak to a beef farmer or somebody, you know? We got to his house. He flipped that garage door up, and there were those four freezers, and he opened them up. And I didn't realize it, but Jolly Green Giant made lasagna. They made Swiss steak. He started loading that 54 Ford up with food. We got back to church. I had to borrow the pastor's freezer, the church freezer. By the end of the week, we were giving away boxed food if somebody would just come hear me preach. You know what God told me? He said, son, you just stay on that front row in the harvest ministering to people. I can feed you. Does God seem absent tonight? Does he seem distant? The truth is, he hasn't moved. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. He promises he never leaves us or forsakes us. He's always there, but we're prone to move away. And when we do, God seems absent. And Isaiah, in kind of an underlying way here, says, come back to the holy place. Come back to the humble place. Come back to the harvest place. You'll find God.